Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners, to RCR Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. Um, clearly, Jaspreet's the one with the dulcet tones, and I'm the one with the droll farming tone. So, um, you know, we welcome your feedback on uh, 2057 or email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Um, and following on from a lot of our interviews in recent months, where we're trying to really get to the nub of and the truth about climate and weather and the reporting of it in mainstream media. We're very honored today to have Dr. Ralph B. Alexander, who is a physicist. Um, he's a prolific author. He's uh, been educated in Australia and Oxford, and he spent a large chunk of his career in Europe, Australia, and United States, where he resides now in California. But he was also a professor at Wayne State University in Detroit, so he knows all about living in a cold area as well. So welcome to RCR Greenwash, Ralph. I hope we can call you Ralph for, through this interview. Yes, thank you, we've, John. We've, glad, we've read, glad, glad to be here. Fantastic. We've read uh, a fair bit of your output, and you certainly are a prolific writer. You've certainly uh, taken a bit of stick from um, perhaps what, what I might say the opposite opposing side uh, yes. the mainstream media side. So anyone that stands tall uh, against um, or stands tall for the truth is, in my books, a good man. So let's let's start with, um, so, you know, your background a bit more than I've explained it and why you've um, decided to uh, be such a writer and, and, an, and a, um, a truth teller. Why have you decided to get to this point? Yes, uh, and I'd be happy to do so. Let, let me preface that, though, with <clears throat> one remark about my background. I was educated at a school, a you know, private school in Perth, Western Australia, which was largely populated by sons of farmers. I was, I was there as a day student, but most of the students were boarders from the, from the country. And so, <clears throat> I grew up getting to know, in fact, I stayed on one or two farms myself, um, getting to know farmers and the farming community. And that's one of the reasons I'm particularly upset about what's going on in agriculture at the moment, not just in your country, New Zealand, but in the Netherlands, in Ireland. Um, anyway, let me, yeah, let me come back uh, to that. Um, you, you, um, I forget now. What we, we, we sort of wondered what, what, in, oh, yes, yes, what, yes. what, 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 this. what yes. yes, what got you into it? Yeah, yes. Uh, this goes back to Wayne State University that you mentioned. Um, I taught there for about seven years and then left to go into the business world, but because I still had a yearning to teach, um. I occasionally taught um, classes, not in physics, well, yes, um, astronomy, but on other topics too, one of which, interestingly enough, was ecology. And the textbook for one of those classes had a chapter, a section on global warming. This was 20, 25 years ago. But even then, the whole thrust of the um, article, the, the chapter, was that uh, this is a human-caused problem. And there was no, this was supposed to be part of a, a, a course on learning about science and the scientific method, which, as you know, involves observation, involves testing and being sceptical. But this whole chapter was written um, as though there were no debate. In Al Gore's words at the time, the science is settled. Well, for a politician to say that is one thing, but for a textbook for a university course to say the same thing, I found rather shocking. So 
After that, I began uh, looking into um, the IPCC reports. And in fact, I read, um, I won't say I read the whole report, but I read about a thousand pages of the, yeah, I think it was the third or fourth report at that time, the, the, the section uh, called on, on physical science. And what, what it found is the more and more I read, the more and more skeptical I became of the narrative. And that's really what, uh, where all this started. After I had finished that exercise, I embarked on writing my first book, which was uh, titled Global Warming, False Alarm. And that, that was published, uh, the first edition was published in 2009. So ever since, uh, you know, that's been one of my main concerns. Well, it's interesting. I sort of got interested in this field in 1998 uh, when New Zealand was talking about joining the Kyoto Protocol. And uh, initially, uh, when I saw the graphs and and uh, the, what was then unknown, <laughs> the hockey stick type yes. um, graphs, oh, yeah. I I thought that didn't seem right. But I'm I'm a layman. I didn't know uh, what I was looking at. But I was hoping that honesty and integrity would come to the fore. Uh, in 2003, there was a rally in New Zealand that farmers railed against the um, fight. You know, it was a, called the fight against ridiculous taxes. It was a methane tax that was going to go on farmers. Um, so we beat that back. Uh, but it was only about 2010-11 when really it became aware that there had been corruption uh, and uh, the man hockey stick um, sort of made mainstream it's, uh, but, interesting to me that this uh, opposition in new zealand goes back 20 years yeah well it, it when i was the president of federated farmers and even before that it was the dominant thing that i talked about every week and i wondered why i couldn't make any traction with even politicians let alone uh, officials and clearly they didn't want to understand that there was um some issue to see here, you know, there was some corruption going on. So when it became aware, uh, we became aware that there was some meddling in the in those graphs and, and the presentation of data, nothing changed. We're still living in the past in New Zealand with all that history and knowledge. We we haven't we haven't fixed it. But but anyway, Ralph, we, we're probably going far too fast here. Uh, we need to sort of settle into um more of your books and and you know, while you wrote that book in 2009, um, you've also had lots of other sort of uh, reason to investigate the climate and the output of things such as um, the hamming up in recent times of catastrophic events in the world. And I'll preface this by reading a, a story that I've just got off um, the internet from Michael R. Bloomberg. Uh, September 15, 2022, to, Dr., to Mr. Klaus Knott, Klaus Chair of the Financial Stability Board, Bank for International Settlements. And he says uh, in his report of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, he says, while global ambition to address climate change has increased over the last five years, Recent extreme weather events around the world have amplified the need for even greater concerted action, faster uh, progress, and faster progress. It is encouraging to see that the consideration of the implications of climate change has become far more mainstream throughout the financial markets since 2017, and that an increasing number of companies are publicly committing to net zero emission transition plans. Now, that links into what instigated this interview. Last week, I happened upon a document from the Global Warming uh, Policy Foundation that's a draft of what you're about to present and yeah. later in the month uh, called, uh, let me get this, I think I've probably lost it now in my... I think it's right the truth about... Yeah, yeah. the truth about weather extremes. Weather. And 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 a few months ago, we had an output uh, that we read, Jasper and I, from Roger... Roger Pialki Jr. on a similar vein. And I thought uh, we would sort of investigate this further because clearly 
you don't have to be um, uh, too far. If mainstream media are bombarding us with constant, catastrophic, unprecedented um, events. And Michael Jane Bloomberg's letter here to the um, Financial Stability Board uh, sort of suggests that businesses are donkey deep in this stuff. They they really do believe everything that you've actually now challenged uh, as being a bit overstated or a lot overstated. So can we go through this about the truth about weather extremes, whether it's heat waves, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes? What did, yes, what did you find? I, what did you find? means Roger, Roger Pelkey's main interest, of, as you know, has been hurricanes, but... When you look at all these areas, even heat waves, heat waves, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, droughts, um, even cold uh, spells, there's no actual evidence that they're on the rise. But of course, the popular perception is exactly the opposite. You know, the media constantly um, hypes any extreme event of any magnitude, big or small, you know, as if this was something that had never happened uh, before in history before. I think that there is one, one reason, I think, for this. I mean, there are a number of reasons. One of the reasons, I think, is simply communication technology. I mean, we live in an age where, thanks to the internet, and smartphones, any event that occurs anywhere in the world, even in a remote area, is instantly um, conveyed to just about the whole of the, the world's population. And that's given us a distorted view of, you know, I think the, the media, unfortunately, have fallen into this trap. It's given us a distorted view of the importance or significance of any particular uh, event. I, I've, I've actually you mentioned the report that uh, I'm writing for the Global Warming Policy Foundation. It's actually the fourth um, report on the same topic that I've written for them in the last um, three or four years. And I've gotten very frustrated by the lack of response. I mean, it's almost as if the world collectively just uh, gives a big yawn <laughs> when something like this appears. So what I did in the, in the first three reports, I presented a lot of data, graphs. Um, and then I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe I mean, to me as a scientist, graphs are important. You know, I, I like graphs. Scientists like graphs because they can read a lot of information from them. But then, then I started thinking, well, maybe people who are not scientists or trained as scientists don't see, you know, information presented that way the same. And so what I embarked on in this current report was a comparison um, of basically of weather extremes today with those of the past let's say, 100 years ago. I mean, we only have good weather records going back 100, 150 years. And I spent some time, quite a lot of time, in fact, looking at newspaper archives and digging out articles that sounded just like anything written today <laughs> about heat waves, hurricanes, floods, and how terrible these were and unprecedented which is the favourite word of our times, that word was used in the 1930s. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? We You just said that it's the messaging. Would you believe, uh, Ralph, in New Zealand, the mainstream media has now gone to the stage. The other day there was a sole issue about crime and there's too much crime. We had a journalist, come on mainstream, you know, primetime TV, and say with a straight face, there's actually not more crime. It's just being reported too often. So when it suits them, it is crime yes. being reported too often. Otherwise, there's no increased crime. The retailers here in New Zealand would beg to differ, but no one listens. In, yeah. in fact, if you even catch somebody these days, yesterday out here, 
our justice system declared that someone who'd been found with arms and ammunition was actually had a breach of the human rights and were racially profiled and it can't be done. So this is a sort of nonsense, a sort of environment we deal in. And uh, I, I found it hilarious. So, and what you said that you trawl through archives there in the US and saw, we've had a journalist in New Zealand, a very good uh, investigative journalist, Ian Wishart, do exactly that. Earlier this year, New Zealand was hit by a cyclone, Cyclone Gabriel, and we've had widespread destruction. And it was on the news, as it should be. We, we actually have had, we were hammered certain areas. But when it was said, unprecedented, Ian Wishart went through the archives and he proved that uh, about 130 odd years ago, we were being hit by one of those every 10 years. He went through ship captain's records and so on. But yeah, it, it, it is amazing, Don, isn't it, how the world across the story is the same? Yes, yes. I, I think that's a, a very valid point. Um, another aspect, I mentioned this not in the report, but in blog post I wrote recently, there are concerted efforts in the media to amplify um, this narrative that global warming is all our fault, all comes from human emissions of carbon dioxide. Um, I, I can't remember the, the, the name of the organization now, but this big organization uh, that funds many of the mass media. Mm. And they fund them, well, supposedly to write the truth about climate change to, to be you know to be honest in reporting but in fact um, to follow um, promote the narrative mm. just you know more of the same there's even with regard to extreme weather I even came across a page on one of the, on this organization's website setting out tips for journalists to write about the increase in uh, magnitude and frequency of extreme weather events right there. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to compete against uh, that sort of thing. I mean, you, Ralph, you said you've, uh, you know, studied at Oxford. Now, Oxford University itself, it has an Oxford Climate Journalism Network. Imagine. Uh, and, you know, when I was uh, looking up uh, details of your work, I came across this and it, it blew me away. What does that even mean? Oxford Climate Journalism Network. You can see that it is there. We are all being pigeonholed into a certain narrative. So too much yes. of crime is not there. It's just too much of reporting. But climate, of course, we are, we are all doomed to fail there. Uh, over the last year, somewhere New Zealand, and we see more and more of our scientists having tie-ups with Californian institutes. And this was preceded last year by our prime minister who went to California. And there was a memorandum of uh, understanding signed. And this one, this particular this one. Was, uh, this was um, Jacinda or her successor? Yeah. No, it was Jacinda. This was last July. So she went she met Gavin Newsom. And at that point, we signed it in San Francisco, May 27th last year. And uh, we sort of agreed <laughs> the memorandum of understanding begins saying that California is more ambitious. We've only, New Zealand is only saying we'll be climbing at zero by 2050. California has declared it will be by 2045. And yes. there is a lot that we can do here together. It was signed by Jared Bloomfield on behalf of California, who at that time was you know, head of your, I think, EPA, Environmental Protection Authority. And he has now moved on. So he's left the government tenure in California and moved on to a $3.5 billion managing a climate fund run by Steve Jobs' uh, widow. So, and uh, he was, he's, he's come out from United Nations in 2005. He was part of the environment program in the U.S., it's amazing how these same people, you, you follow them and you follow the money. Yes. That's, I keep telling, you know, anyone, when you start debating climate science, unless you start talking money to me, I am not debating this. We need to see which way the money went before right. anything else. You're right. Uh, two, two thoughts. 
One is some of those same people behind that are also sponsors of the organization whose name I can't remember that is mm-hmm. funding this uh, journalistic uh, effort. They, they have uh, you know, hundreds of, 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 of newspapers and TV um, networks on their, on their list. Uh, the other th- thought is going back to something Don mentioned a few minutes ago, this um, emphasis on ESG um, in the business world. Um, one of the things I've noticed recently, yes, there was a big um, movement in that direction two or three years ago, but now I'm, uh, you must have seen this too. There seems to be a reaction against it. And even um, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock um, Investments, worth, you know, the company worth an enormous uh, billions worth of billions, uh, literally. Yep. investment funds, he's pulled back and he's saying, no, maybe, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, attach too much importance to a company's attention to this climate area after all. I I, I find that encouraging. Well, I found it encouraging too because I read the same thing, um, Ralph, but what I also read was um, some new words following uh, and words are what matter in all of this. And yes. I think um, Mr Fink was um, being a little disingenuous, to be honest, because I think he tried um, to use... Uh, influencing influencing words in a different manner, like um, oversight, and I think he even may have used the word influential oversight. So the ambition's still there to try and pigeonhole companies into reporting this stuff. And of course, as a hedge fund manager, the, the wealth creation that's heading their way is huge. Um, as he said in a recent um, uh, podcast that I saw. I well, know it was actually a video I saw that he uh, he admitted that capitalists love authoritarian or totalitarian governments. It makes their job a whole lot easier. And of course, um, you know, there's a fair bit of Western governance at the moment that you would argue is hardly, um, hardly open and transparent. But anyway, hey, let's move on from that. Um, yeah, he's talking... Out of both sides of his mouth. Yeah, I think he is. I think he is. And as as I've learned in my life, um, if if people that there's and Jasper and I often talk about the nudge units uh, around the world, um, that's a certain sort of bunch of influences. And we know that if they say X, they actually really mean Y. Um, they mean the opposite. Um, so we've learned to be cynical, and I know that's a sad approach to life, perhaps, but. Um, we believe in sim- simplicity and truth, and that's why we have people like you on, because you do put stuff out in a way that's um, lay acceptable as well. As well as you're talking it to your peers, um, it's 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 good for us as well. And so can we go right back, though, to the signs that came out for the heat waves, the floods, the droughts, the hurricanes yeah. and wildfires and the like? The way I read it, the IPCC knows about all this. Um, they have admitted that there is a sign for a slight warming uh, coming through, but all the rest are as you write. But why is it in the summary for policymakers and uh, and the like, no one picks that up? Why is it that you think that our um, advisors to our governments won't pick up what the IPCC even says as is accurate that you have confirmed um, as useful, because as Jasper has just told you, we had this cyclone earlier this year. We've had more rain events since. We've had quite severe winds in recent weeks. And oh, all these things are unprecedented. We've got airlines now f- sort of you know, saying we're going to cancel a flight because it's a bit windy in, in our city. Um, you know, our city, I've flown into the city hundreds of times in some severe winds where the plane's going sideways. Now it's, oh, no, you can't do that. Uh we, we talk about atmospheric rivers. You know, these are these cyclones. They're atmospheric rivers. Um, in California. The, so why is it that, um, you know, you probably can't answer that, so I'll ask a different question. No, I, I, it's, I, I, it's, I just can because um, you're, you're talking about the IPCC. Yeah. 
the real problem is the way that the IPCC is structured. Uh, in principle, as you know, it's a scientific body, a couple of thousand scientists from around the world who pool their collective um, research on the climate. The problem is, though, it's not just scientific, it's more political than scientific. And that's where the problem comes in, because frequently the scientific portion um, of an IPCC report, which is like the first, first part, and then there are two other parts which come after that, the scientific portion is often reasonably scientific. In other words, statements are qualified, um, there's doubt expressed, um, and there's a fairly honest attempt, you know, to present the science as it exists. But then what happens is the government uh, and NGO bureaucrats are also part of the IPCC. Um, they don't number maybe as many, but there must be hundreds of them. And they're the people that determine what gets said in the summary. They, they edit everything. And one of the reasons that infamous hockey stick turned up again, I was uh, you know, really disappointed to see in the most recent report is that the uh, bureaucrats wanted it in there. It wasn't so much that the science had changed. Um, yes, there are some climate activists among scientists, um, but they're also skeptics. Um, but all of a sudden this appears and that's all that's presented to the, to the public. So it's more, I said, it's much more political what, what the IPCC is on record as saying than what's really in the reports. Yeah, there, well, there are things in the reports that uh, you know can be questioned. Yeah, it is. It is hard to believe that an amalgam of ideas from hundreds, if not thousands, of scientists could come out and be so corrupted, and yet people accept it um, because the people that want it accepted are in the majority and in the pay of somebody else, no doubt. Um, it it's. So can we talk about the 97% consensus then? Because I think that all links in. What's your uh, understanding of the 97% consensus uh, um, often used line? How relevant is that? I mean, clearly it's relevant to mainstream media because that's all they talk about and politicians. Well, in, in reality, it's irrelevant because it's wrong. Um, in, in my book, I set out the, the reasons for that. It, it came from many uh, sources, but the main source was a paper um, by two gentlemen, uh, one of whom is not a scientist, I think he's a psychologist. And what they did is they looked at something like 12,000 scientific papers or the abstracts of them. And uh, on the basis of a question that they asked, concluded that 97% of the 12,000 um, believed in, in, the, in the climate change narrative. But when you actually look at the numbers, um, several, uh, so I've forgotten the exact numbers, but um, the ex several thousand, let's say four or 5,000, didn't express any opinion at all, one way or the other in the abstract. <laughs> Once you subtract off those, the picture changes drastically. And depending on, you know, on how you interpret some of the numbers, the actual number is between, I estimated, between 33% and 63% of all those 12,000 authors believe. So the consensus may well be less than 50%. And in my experience, it is. Many people, I mean, I, I feel sorry for, for researchers in climate science because most of their funding comes with strings attached yeah. in the 
the string is that you better support the narrative or you won't get any more money. That's an unfortunate fact. And so a lot of young um, people, young climate scientists, don't buck the, the system because they know if they do, they won't get promoted or they won't get more research funding. On the worst case, they'll get fired. And that's happened, uh, sad to say, at least three or four times around the world. People have actually been fired. Peter Ritt, I believe you had on the program before. He, he's one of them. Mm. Well, he was fired from his academic position because he dared to question the uh, authority. Well, and in that case, the authority was um, so well-funded and so good at putting its hand out for so much money from the Australian taxpayers that, uh, yeah, anyone that challenged the use of that money was was fair game. And sadly, um, well, yeah, it's been exposed, but still the funding goes on for 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 the um, Great Barrier Reef survival mechanisms. Right. But it, it's a common thread, Ralph. This is a common thread. We have interviewed now perhaps dozens of people like yourself uh, from a variety of backgrounds, though, and the common thread is this funding mechanism. And if you, the people that stand up are generally retired scientists who do not have to rely on the payment, don't have to rely on a payment to keep themselves going after retirement. So it's a sad indictment on us, a sad indictment on mainstream media and politicians who have bought into um, the constant misinformation and disinformation campaign of climate alarmism. And you write in this paper, uh, that is a draft I admit to uh, or, sort of suggest again to, to listeners. You say the constant repetition of a false belief can over time create the illusion of truth, a phenomenon well known to psychologists and one exploited by propagandists. Now, I remember talking about this as a layman 20 years ago, but still it's very hard to get people to once this psychological operation has been done on people, it's very hard to swing them back. Um, how are we going to do this? I mean, this is one step at a time with this interview, but um, yeah. how can we do it quickly? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really wish I knew the answer to that, and I despair sometimes of, you know, ever-changing anyone's mind. But as you say, I think it has to be done one one mind at a time. Um as I also said in the same same report, I'm not sure if I'll leave the, the sentence in there, this um, fact that, you know, a lie can be very easily propagated was the you know, famous example, infamous example, of course, is uh, Joseph Goebbels, the uh, Nazi propagandist. Um, the... Um, there's another expression, I'm sure you've heard it too, that um, I, th I think sometimes attributed to Winston Churchill, that um, by, the t by the time a lie travels halfway around the world, the truth hasn't even got its pants on. <laughs> and, of course, with uh, with the internet and uh, smartphones, as you talk about about your in your, in your papers, uh, that... The dissemination of um, of of information is so easy. It doesn't matter whether it's true or false. It just gets out there very quickly, and and of course, gullible people pick it up. And I, I have to admit, I've been gullible to information flows in my cell phones uh, and, and and internet over time. But hopefully, um, most of us can get to a point where uh, the truth is paramount and um, more obvious. And uh, and you know that's. My motto is simplicity and truth. And as a layman, if I can't see it clearly in an abstract or a paragraph, uh, if someone can't express it simply, then the masses aren't going to accept it. Uh, it has to be found out in a simple fashion by everyone to, to buy into it. Currently, we're in an election cycle here, Ralph, and um, the current posturing by the different parties, it's hard to know who can speak out of both sides of the mouth their best. I mean, they're all doing it. And how does how do voters um, pick up the truth? How do they know what's right and wrong when, in, in fact, uh, 
yeah, there's 50-50 stories coming out all the time. And um, as I said, people seem to speak out both sides of the mouth. That's an opinion. Let's move on. Well, we've got some other stuff we'd like to talk about with you. Um, you've written books uh, covering a variety of um, topics, not just um, on climate. Uh, you've written uh, books that, for instance, talk about the continental drift or um, uh, creationism, evolution. Yes. And yeah, you know, that fascinates me, the the evolution um, story. So yeah, do you want to expand a little bit on what you've what you've deduced in your research and writings? What, what um, um, Jasper mentioned this before, I covered about six topics in that book. As Don mentioned, the first was continental drift, then was evolution, um, dietary fat, global warming, vaccination, and genetically modified foods. And what, <clears throat> what I was trying to do was to, well, I started with continental drift because I felt that was a one of many, not the only, but one of many classical examples of a scientific consensus that turned out to be wrong. In that case, the consensus was that uh, the continents had never moved. They were fixed in place and they'd always been that way. That was the belief at the beginning of the 20th century among um, geologists. Then along comes this upstart, um, Wegener, um, who proposes <laughs> this radical theory that that's not the case at all, that the continents were once in very different places. That was in 1912. He was rather like global warming skeptics today. He was viciously attacked. He was denigrated. Um, he became very depressed at one stage about it. Um, and his ideas were totally rejected by the establishment. And it wasn't until the 1960s thanks to some actual scientific evidence, measurements made on the seafloor um, of the ocean ridges and, and how they were uh, moving, that he was vindicated. But I say that took about 50 years. An older example in history, of course, this is talked about often, is Galileo, who was as you know, it's one of the most famous physicists of all time, and you know the, the ranks of Isaac Newton and um, Stephen Hawking, and Galileo. He didn't actually propose it himself, but he supported the view of a colleague called Copernicus um, that it was not the sun that revolved around the Earth, but the Earth that revolved around the sun. Well, that was totally against the teaching of the church at that time. And it's not so much a religious issue because the church at that time was, was like the modern-day university. Um, you know, m most uh, intellectuals and academics would find a place somewhere in, 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 the, in the church. And Galileo was, as you know, um, almost... Um, burnt the stake. It was only because he was as famous as he was. Uh, he, he wrote a book, basically, um, against the uh, papal, the official papal policy, and uh, was called before the Spanish Inquisition, or the Inquisition. Um, had he not been so so well known, I say he, he would have been sentenced to death. Instead, he was sentenced to house arrest for the uh, the rest of his life. Same thing. And his book, that particular book, um, was not, um, I was going to say exonerated, not, not approved by the Catholic Church until the 1800s. So that's another example. Um, then move, moving on from continental drift to evolution, um, I felt that that was also a good example of uh, a, cons well, an, 
a new idea. In, in that case, it was really the reverse of the global warming picture. It was a new idea. Um, Charles Darwin's um, book on, uh, I forget what it was called now, on, anyway, proposing his theory of uh, evolution. The belief at the time, on, on, but you know, I mean, this is religion versus science. Um, the belief of the church, in this case, it wasn't the Catholic Church, it was the uh, Church of England, was was dominant. And that was that, of course, we were created in whatever the year was, 4004 BC, and um, that was it. That was the creation, and that was the beginning of all life on Earth, animals, humans, everything else. And, of course, evolution painted a very different picture and suggested that uh, you know our origins went back much further, as we know now from science, from you know some billions of years. But again, um, Darwin's ideas were not accepted in his lifetime, and it took 30, 40 years um, for, for that. Likewise, with with um, with dietary fat, there, there was a um, a belief in the up until fairly recently that fat just you know quote unquote in in the diet is a bad thing well yes some fats are but as we know now some fats are not they're very beneficial um and there was a fellow called um yeah i can't can't think of his name either Keys, Ansel Keys, who uh, promoted that idea in the 1950s and 1960s against an ever-increasing body of actual evidence that that was not the case, um, that it didn't raise cholesterol levels, for example. Then global warming. Vaccination. <laughs> of course, has become a very touchy subject uh, after the, the pandemic. Um, but once again, uh, you know, there the, 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 uh, a strong movement. Well, vaccination, um, modern-day vaccination, was conceived by uh, an English um, scientist, Jenner, uh, Edward Jenner, in I think the 19, early 19th century, and he was the first to to uh, verify or to propose that you know um, injecting the human body with a, in his case, I think a live virus could actually act as a defence against future attack from that virus. But I think it was tuberculosis. Um, involved in his discovery but once in this case it wasn't the scientific community that was so vehemently opposed to his discovery it was the lay public uh, and there arose which has survived to the present day the anti-vax the anti-vaccination movement which became very strong um, there was a celebrated case of um, trying to trying to think. Um, but that Edward Jenner, I remember, Doctor Alexander. It was I think milkmaids who were not getting this particular disease. Smallpox. Smallpox. Yeah, mm. smallpox. Yes. and that's that's where it came from. But there was empirical evidence, and yeah. Yeah, that that was in fact absolutely correct. That was the obs his observation mm. uh, that there must be something <laughs> yes. about their environment that um, that led to it. But I was moving on a century or so. Um, there was an English doctor. Um, this, who turned out to be a charlatan. Um, mm who claimed that um, 
vaccination with the tetanus DPT uh, vaccine was detrimental um, and could cause all sorts of you know, terrible effects. And he published several papers supposedly presenting evidence. And it turned out, well, he, he, he was um, eventually debunked and had to retract um, many of his papers. So that was kind of a reverse example. And then again with, with, with GMOs. So what, what I'm trying to say here is that <clears throat> there's often a conflict between a new idea or even an old idea, a consensus, um, and the popular view. And some of the examples in, in the book, you know, present one side and some some the other. Yeah. And I, and I sorry, Jasper, I was going to say, and that's why I think um if anything, uh the rational optimist, uh the evolution of ideas and things like um Lord Matt Ridley has written that I've read, they taught me to have a far wider and open mind to things than I had had before. And I think that perhaps is a problem with society in general. Uh, if you're being bombarded by mainstream media on one side or and politicians and 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 bureaucrats, it's very hard to um, um, you know the 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 idea of um, a person's brain is to say, oh, they're telling me they're paid to tell, hopefully the truth. Mm. We should believe them. It's very hard to um, sort of say, well, hmm, that doesn't make sense, uh, and we need to. Um, investigate further, and that's the problem we've got. I think so. It's the constant, mm -hmm. the constant drip of water of a story has got through and um, drilled holes in our brains, and we just aren't, um, as as in the majority of the population, willing to accept there could be something different. Um, and sorry, and for someone, someone like me, it is all these networks that are being set up constantly. If it was, as Donny said, if it was that simple one paragraph, a page, one textbook would be enough. You wouldn't need to, you know, put all these journalism networks. I think one of that is covering climate now, which has uh, links all over the world. We have six New Zealand uh, media houses in that particular one. And literally, hours, hours back, as we talk, there came this uh, headline from Reuters and others saying that religious leaders may be the key to breaking climate action deadlock, the poll suggests. The survey published the same day that Pope Francis said no one can ignore climate change found that stronger religious convictions often paired with increased doubt in climate change. But again, you know, it is it is uh, strikes me, you know, we're talking about Galileo and him being uh, hung in quarter, figuratively speaking. This is now Pope, the Pope who I thought would stay out of all of this. Pope Francis yeah. has released his latest papal letter rebuking the irresponsible lifestyle of, and keyword, Westerners. Irresponsible lifestyle of Westerners, in quotes, and chastising those who try to delay the, uh, the efforts to address climate change. Now, for me, this is an immediate red flag. You are, you know, you are supposedly a religious leader. You are now teaming up with journalists, doing surveys, and you are referring to one set, Westerners. What's, I mean, I, I would think that any any person with an iota of brain in the head would go, hey, let's back up this train a moment. There is something wrong here. Yes, yes. No, I think the, uh, the Pope in particular is totally out of his depth. In fact, <laughs> he wrote his previous encyclical, which I think was 2015, I actually wrote a letter to the Vatican. I never got a reply, of course, uh, <laughs> telling telling him what I you know what I just said, what I thought. I mean, really, I mean, why is it the business of the Pope or the Church or anyone connected with religion to comment on? on it's the same thing. It's the science and religion to comment on. On science, uh, I will say you've probably seen this yourselves. Uh, he has been vigorously attacked already in the last uh, couple of days. I, I've seen some very strongly worded uh, critiques. But imagine even trying to do such a survey, Ralph, and <laughs> done by this group called the Pew Research Center Survey. 
released last week found that just 44% of American Catholics believe in human-caused climate change, while 29% believe it is due to natural patterns, 13% don't believe the world is warming at all. For me, if you have to go to that level of minute to start now polling Catholics and non-Catholics, I'm a Sikh. Tomorrow we might, might be having you know, atheists and others. This is sheer nonsense. This is someone I trying agree. to hang on to uh, you know, a narrative that is disintegrating and they are throwing their all at it. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you, you're right. Um, talking about numbers and going back to well, what we were <clears throat> discussing a few, few moments ago, the level of disbelief in the climate narrative, I believe, among the general public um, is now above 50%, at least according to, uh, I think it was a Gallup poll. Mm. Yeah, wow. so so there is hope. There is hope. There is, <laughs> and, 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 and I think there will be more hope as the economic fallout of this continues. I, I wonder, Ralphie, we've taken quite a bit of yeah. your time, but I wonder if you could have, we could have some remarks from you on how you see the race to net zero in California unfurling in ways around you in which, according to me, I would think they'd be making ordinary people, ordinary Californians' lives uncomfortable economically harder but I, I i am happy to be corrected would you let us know what the how the fallout is affecting i i think what's going to happen here in the united states is exactly what's happening right now in europe specifically germany um and to some extent the uk people are beginning to realize that all of the, the they yes if asked, do they support the idea that we need to do something about climate change, they'll answer yes. But mm. as soon as they begin to realize how much it's going to cost them as individuals, the pendulum swings very much in the other direction. I've seen estimates, a lot of people are not willing to pay more than, let's say, $10, $20 a year mm. to take action in to combat climate change if you believe the action will do anything at all in reality it's going to cost each individual probably two or you know 10 or a hundred times more than that in other words hundreds or even thousands of, of dollars uh, a year um in 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 europe the big concerns are mandates for electric vehicles and and for heat pumps as you probably know yep and uh, it's always it's it's already been fairly well demonstrated and a lot of people are starting to to believe that heat pumps are not a very effective substitute for gas fired or oil fired um, furnaces burners and a lot of people especially the the the, you know, the poorer members of society are going to freeze or, or get ill because the, the, the heat pump doesn't heat your home nearly as well and that's only if you can afford it in the first place i mean they're offering massive subsidies um on the order of thousands many thousands seven thousand pounds to install one of these things which isn't going to work as well and um, comes with all sorts of other restrictions, like you have to re-insulate your house. And it might have to be, you know, there's, there'll come a time when the hungry and the free, freezing, starving, uh, will all just need to unite. Yeah, and with, with electric cars, I mean, lots of electric car manufacturers, maybe not um, Elon Musk and Tesla or the Chinese, but... Uh, a lot of them, Volkswagen, I know is one, have a lot of electric vehicles sitting um, sitting on lots unsold. So many, in fact, that Volkswagen, I know in particular, has laid off a couple of thousand employees because they they don't need to make any more. <laughs> There's mm. no room to put them. 
Um, the problem, it's a, it's a different problem with electric vehicles, although it's related, it's that they're so expensive, the average person is simply not able to afford them. No. I know what it's like in New Zealand, but... Um, uh, we we subsidise them, um, um, Ralph. Uh, there's been some, some pretty good discounts given to buying uh, electric cars. They don't pay any road user charges currently, so they get free access to our roads. Um, right. you know, no one takes no one takes into account the um, environmental um, the environment used to build an electric car. All the all the products that have to make a car. Look, the thing that gets me most mostly about all of this is the narrowing down of energy sources to a one size fits all, which is electricity. It's the craziest thing when you're trying to do non-market based um, futures. It just doesn't make and pushing people to it. It just doesn't make sense to me. Look, I, I would like to go right back to where we started. And I stopped you early on talking about farming because that's critical to us. And, and in, our, in our interaction via emails, we... I'd like to share. Yeah, yeah. We started this early on um, in an email dialogue. You did make some reference to... Um, I, I made reference to that um, Miles Allen and Michelle Kane have uh, sort of got into the heads and minds of um, some of their farm leaders that they're the best and of the best in terms of um, New Zealand's um, ruminant animals. Uh, we they've got the best science. Um, the Happer and Van Wingarden and Co et al stuff isn't quite there. Um, have you got comments to make on, you know, why? Why would New Zealand farmers be being sort of the poster child for the world when the science doesn't appear to be uh, clearly put in front of the public of New Zealand, let alone um, the, the politicians who are imposing these potential taxes on farmers? I mean, I, I didn't say that very well. We've got no, problems. No, We've got um, problems. What, what, what you're saying, and I think it's the travesty. I never knew that uh, methane was already being taxed in, in your country. Well, um, no, it's not. It's not being taxed yet, but it's been pushed oh, and kicked. kicked it's, well, so. yeah, and maybe uh, it's still being pushed out. I mean, everyone pushes the narrative they're going to tax those damn farmers, but they've never been able to get it over the goal line. But so now we're being told that if we don't do X, Y, Z, tax these dirty farmers for their methane and their animals, um, you will have trade sanctions put upon the country. And, and that's also, the, also because they say for us, it's a big amount, 50% right, right. of let, our let, country's let, emissions. Yeah. Let, let, let me give you a few numbers. Um, I, I recently wrote a blog post on a paper that claimed that um, emissions from agriculture mm. would warm alone, not from any other source, just from agriculture, were going to warm the earth by almost uh, a full degree Celsius <laughs> by, um, I think, the, the year 2100. Well, it turns out that that paper and many others um, of, in the same vein are mistaken about some of the basic physics involved. So, so I was going to give you some numbers. The, the actual temperature increase is likely to be about a tenth of that, not one degree Celsius, about 0 0.1 degrees Celsius. Two, two numbers are often thrown out about methane and nitrous oxide, and that is that methane is 25 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in causing global warming, and nitrous oxide is even worse. It's 300 times more. What is never stated is that those numbers actually are correct, but only if you understand why they're correct. Those are numbers per molecule. One molecule of methane has 25 times the warming potential of one molecule of carbon dioxide, and likewise for nitrous oxide. But both gases are much less abundant than carbon dioxide, and their rate of, of the increase of, of the concentration level 
is much, much lower. And you have to take that into account. So the, these are the actual numbers that I've got. If you take carbon dioxide as one for warming potential, mm. methane over a 20-year period is 83, and nitrous oxide is 273. Now, the rates of increase in, um, for example, we know that carbon dioxide is about 415 parts per million. Methane is only two, 1.9, and nitrous oxide is even less. But what's important is how fast those numbers are increasing. Um, the number for carbon dioxide, the increase is about 2.3 parts per million per year. We've seen that CO2 goes up. Methane, though, is 7.6 parts per billion. Billion, yep. And nitrous oxide is even less. Now, when you factor all that together, the actual warming potential of methane is about 27% of that for carbon dioxide. And nitrous oxide is about 10%. So even together, both of those gases only contribute roughly a third as much to global warming, if you believe the narrative in the first place, which, of course, I don't. <laughs> but if you do, they contribute only a third as much as carbon dioxide. So why should we be culling millions of cows in Ireland taxing methane from uh, burp, cow burps in New Zealand or um, shutting down farms completely as they're planning to do in the Netherlands. I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense to me. Well, yeah, thank you for that um, oversight. I mean, of course, we know that uh, water vapour overshadows everything and no one even talks about that. There's one other comment in your email to me, um, and Jasper will be hot about this, because as you will have found by this interview so far, it doesn't matter what you uh, are talking about. Jasper researching uh, in the background, and she's she's a dynamo on this stuff, but she's hot on C40 cities. What would you like to comment about C40 cities? Have you, you talked about it oh. in an email, and it's probably the last thing we'll talk about in this interview, but... Um, yeah, what's your uh, what's your take on that? Because Auckland, New Zealand is involved. Yeah, we had a signatory. Fr frankly, I'm just flabbergasted. Uh, one of our cities, San Francisco, has has signed up also. I mean, as you, if if you look at their website, it all sounds very noble um, and not particularly harmful. Or anything to be concerned about. If you dig into the details, though, you find out things like the C40 cities are going to mean giving up meat, eating meat altogether, restricting the number of items of clothing you can buy per year to like three. Yeah. Um, Restricting the distance, well, the the, num the amount of number of times you can travel, uh, you can take one air flight, say from New Zealand to Europe, once every three years. Um, Fifteen-minute cities, so-called, I believe, are part of the story too. Mm. You can't travel more than fifteen minutes to go anywhere, hospital, see a relative, whatever, without being fined. Um, and there's, there's, there are a couple of other details too, but uh, I, I'm just shocked that this even exists yeah. and more shocked that these 40 cities have actually signed on to it. But aren't, you more, aren't you more shocked that people could write papers uh, and be paid <laughs> to write papers and have conferences and save the planet one step at a time by going to conferences and nudging society towards it? I mean, Ralph, I think it's a, it's a really good place to end. We've covered, um, we've, we've gone around the world about three times in this interview and once over lightly is probably never good enough for an academic such as yourself. And, uh, 
we're honored to have had you on the show. You've clearly had a lifetime in um, academia investigating stuff that um, we all need to know about. And in the end, um, we can only hope that common sense and reason does win the day and that uh, people like you can continue your output, continue to educate people. Uh, by the way, you do have a blog. You may want to talk about that and may want to alert our listeners to what they can go on to and, and uh, read your output. Um, yes, Don. Yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you both. Um, I only hope you know conversations like this do have some impact. Yes. Uh, my my blog is at uh, science under attack or one word. Dot com. Yeah, that's that's great, Ralph. Look, as I said, we're honoured to have had you on. We've taken an hour of your time, um, and I'm I know it's the fall in. Um, in the El Dorado Hills in California, where you live, and uh, may you have a um, a pleasant day from now on and into the winter that you're about to head into. And I hope that the snow doesn't fall as deeply as it did last year on Lake Tahoe. <laughs> well, the same to you, Don. And I wish your organisation well and a lot of luck in uh, combating this nonsense. Yeah, Thank thanks you so much. much. Thank you for your time today, Ralph. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.